This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Yes, it is our big Thursday show. Very excited to be with you. And as we have done for the past several weeks, couple of months now, we are going to start off with the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So let's go ahead and jump straight into that to see how the state is doing in regards to the novel coronavirus. And you can see there that we have 16,310 confirmed cases. There are 200,481 tested. So we actually have, and this is a milestone that actually I'm, I'm glad that we've hit, uh, unlike you know confirmed cases or unlike deaths, testing is something that if the numbers go up, we can actually celebrate. So the fact that we have surpassed 200,000 tests and 70,000 of that 200,000, so a large percentage, uh, not too far away from half, about 40%, of the test have been conducted in the past two weeks, so that's something to be excited about. Unfortunately, there have also been 590 deaths in the Yellowhammer State, and there have been 1,765 hospitalizations. And one thing that you do want to notice about the map there, and again, I think it's just because they're changing the rubrics. They're not actually, obviously, the, the per capita numbers haven't dropped significantly, because that would either have to mean that the population of a county grew or they suddenly got less cases, which is not happening. But uh, I do think that this map, now that they've changed the, the color scheme, have, have somewhat more accurately depicted what's actually going on in the hot spots in the state. Because you'll notice that counties like Otaga and El Elmore are no longer bright, bright red, which is, you know, about correct. They're, they're roughly middle of the pack when it comes to about how many they have per 100,000 when it comes to cases. And so that really is a better indication of how the counties are doing in comparison to other counties in the state, comparison nationwide. So both, both of those, just that's a better indication now that you can see that they've sort of dropped out of that, that bright ruby red, which makes it look a lot scarier than the numbers would actually suggest that it is. Now, another thing that is important to note, because it's been a while since we've talked about this, the fatality ratio in Alabama from confirmed cases to the, the mortality rate, people that actually perish from this thing, has actually dropped to 3.6. Now, granted, that's far below what we think the actual fatality rating is. The actual fatality rating across the country and, and overall from the virus worldwide is probably a lot closer to that of the flu uh, most experts, even the people that were super in favor of the shutdown and thinking that this thing was going to be the next apocalypse, a lot of them now are saying that the newest data suggests that the actual fatality rate of the coronavirus, once we have more data in and everything, is going to be more indicative of how severe the thing really is, probably only about 0.2 to 0.6. Now, granted, that doesn't mean it's insignificant. 0.2 to 0.6 of the world's population dying to this thing, still a very big deal. And another thing to remember, too, is that when you consider the regular flu, that its death rate is about 0.1, 0.2 would still be double that. And if it winds up being 0.6, even though, based on the numbers I'm seeing, I think it's closer to 0.5. But if it winds up being 0.6, which is the higher estimate now from a lot of the experts, that would mean it's six times deadlier than the flu. So still a big deal, not playing that down. But at the same time, that's probably where the actual fatality rating is. But 
with the limited amount of testing that we have now without doing sampling or without having antibody testing right now, the fatality rate for the, the state of Alabama is 3.6. Then you may remember a few weeks ago, we were having fatality ratings that were well above four. Some that reached, I think 5.2 was the highest number I ever reported. We didn't check that every single day, but I believe 5.2 was the highest that it was ever recorded in the state of Alabama. The fact that it's dropped down to 3.6 is a really good thing, and it also means that our testing is a little bit more robust. It's a little bit more indicative of what's actually going on. And so, of course, that does give us a much better idea, a much better understanding of how serious this thing is within our state borders. So let's go ahead and dig in to the numbers, the statistics. You can look here at the number of new cases we're having per day, again, from the Alabama Department of Public Health. And you can see there that we have been above average for the past couple of days, but nowhere near that 666. No, I'm not making up the number. That really was the number a couple days ago. That spike from a couple days ago. So with having 467, we are slightly up from yesterday, but and still above average, but uh, that that is where we stand right now. Now, one thing that I did want to do, and I promised that I would do yesterday, because it's been a week since we've done this, we're going to take a look at the 14-day averages and the 7-day averages because even though I do think that it is a good thing and I think that it is beneficial to look at the, the new daily numbers and compare them to other days, your 7-day and your 14-day averages are a much better indicator of where we are headed. That, that's a much better sign to go by because you can always have days that are outliers. You can have one day that's particularly bad. You can have one day that isn't. So looking at those week-by-week -week averages... It gives you a little bit better understanding of where we actually are. So if you're looking at the seven-day average of this week, we averaged having 432 new cases per day. Okay, that's up. That's up substantially, especially if you compare it to the seven-day average of the previous seven days, which was 312. That's an increase of 120 per day. That's not insignificant. We are having significantly more cases in the state of Alabama. As Dr. Scott Harris, who is the Alabama state health officer, has said, testing is probably a contributing factor to that, but it doesn't account for all of those increases. And I tend to concur with him. That's probably right. As somebody that looks at the data every single day, the, the testing is probably having something to do with it. But as we'll look in a second... Testing really isn't becoming nearly as, as more robust as people would have you believe. In fact, it's, it's actually on the decline, and we'll get to those numbers in a second. But uh, so I don't really think that you could make the case that these numbers, you, could, you can't just dismiss them or chalk them up to, oh, we're doing more testing. Well, if you're looking at our 14 and 17 day averages, we're actually not doing more testing than we were previously. And so the fact that our confirmed cases are increasing at a time where our testing is not increasing, that means that we really are having more people get this virus. And that's to be expected. Like I said, we knew this was going to happen from the onset. When everybody was talking about we have to shut everything down and flatten the curve, everybody knew that once everything started opening back up, the shutdown started to end, we were going to see an increase. And that's exactly what happened. It's been several days. I mean, it was, uh, it's been nearly a month now, not quite a month, 
because uh, I want to say it was May 5th. May 5th was when Governor Ivey officially ended the shutdown. I suggested that it actually ended before then. Or no, it was, uh, it was the next week. So we've been opened up officially. I think we've actually been opened up since about the end of April. But uh, we officially opened up, at, you know, about the, the after the first week in May. And so looking at the numbers now is a pretty good indication that what we figured was going to happen and what common sense would dictate would happen, which is the more people get out and about, the more cases you're going to have of this thing. Turns out that is true. So that's an increase of 120 people per day over the past seven days. 14-day average is a little less foreboding. And that is because this previous week was just really bad when it came to new cases. So the 14-day averages of the previous two weeks, 372. The 14-day average before that, 292. So that's an increase of 80. Still substantial. 80 more cases per day of an increase over two weeks. That's a big deal. But it's not nearly the jump that we saw in the previous week. This previous week had a lot of new cases in it, and that is partially because of that really, really big spike we saw a couple of days ago. So that's really where we're standing on the cases. On the testing, and you can see our numbers for testing right here. On testing, you will see there that we have uh, been pretty subpar on testing really for about the past week. We had a lot of testing about a week ago, and it just kind of died down. And if you look at the data for the 7 and 14-day averages, the, the data reflects that as well. If you're looking at it, our 7-day average for this week, 300, or sorry, 3,935, the past 7 days was 4,073. So not a massive drop off, but a drop off. That means we were conducting about 300 and, or sorry, 138. I don't know why I'm, I'm dyslexic today for some reason. 138 tests less per day that we're doing this week as opposed to last week. And if you look at the 14 day average, that uh, decrease is, is not quite as big, but it's, you know, it's, it's still substantial. So our 14 day average for the past two weeks on testing was 4,004 a day. And then our 14 days before that, the prior two weeks, our average was 4,088. So that's a decrease of 84. And this is testing, which has much larger daily numbers than the other statistics, thank God, uh, than, than the other statistics that we look at. So it means we're doing about the same on a, if you're looking at the two week average, it's a little different. We're doing a little bit worse, but it's not a mass. It's, it's not like testing has dropped off the map. And that's the one thing that I, I don't like about that chart, even though I'm, I'm glad to have the chart. I'm glad to have the data and I showed it to you for a reason. It seems as though we've had a much bigger drop off in testing than we actually have. If you're averaging out and using those 14 day averages, it gives you a pretty good in indication of where we are. So we've dropped off some and we've dropped off significantly more in the past seven days. But overall, if you're looking at the past two weeks, it's it's a drop off of some, but it's not a massive amount. It's not a large percentage of our testing or not being conducted. And that probably really is a decrease in demand. 
I've not seen any reports recently of different testing facilities in Alabama having shortages, people that want the test not being able to get the test, which means that the lack of testing is not because of that. It's because of a lack of demand. And a lot of people that are at high levels of vulnerability, and I'm not talking about people that are in danger of dying from the virus or people that have pre-existing conditions like myself that have risk factors that could lead to the being fatal, even though that's probably somewhat of a factor. It's more people that have already had the virus and now don't need to get tested because there's very, very little chance that they could get reinfected based on all of the science that we've seen on this virus so far. And so that's probably at least part of the reason you're seeing that decrease in demand for testing, even though it's it's a slight decrease, it is one that uh, you really you, you can notice it. I guess it's not statistically insignificant. I guess technically, but it's darn close to it. Now let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations, and this is a far more important statistic, of course. Let's go ahead and see how our hospitalizations are doing. So you'll see hospitalizations have sustainably been up and above average for the past three days. That's not a good sign. And we were down a little bit today from yesterday, but not by much. The fact that we have been floating around in the 40s for the past three days, not great, especially compared to how we were doing last week. And so it's not a, again, not a massive difference, but it's one that that does stick out. So how are we doing on the seven-day and 14-day comparisons for hospitalizations? Well, on the seven-day average, we did about 31 per day this week. So 31 new hospitalizations for the coronavirus per day this week. Last week, only 26. So that has increased as well from 26 to 31, an increase of five per day. Since we're dealing with smaller numbers, an increase of five per day is significant. But I mean, five more people hospitalized per day this week as opposed to last week. That's not a pan- that's not panic time, guys. It's an increase. But it's not like, holy cow, we've got to get this thing under control. No, I, it's five more people a day. And that can stack up over time if we continue to have five more people a day uh, on average over the next several weeks. That could be a, a significant problem, but... There's no reason to believe that the data indicates that something like that would happen. And so the fact that our our daily average has gone up a little bit really isn't a cause for alarm. I know that there's been a lot of fear-mongering, and we'll actually get to that a little bit later in the program as well, over the amount of hospital and medical resources that we have available here in the capital city. And of course, there's a difference in looking at the daily averages for the state overall versus specifically ones here in Montgomery. It's, it's, I'm, I'm guessing it's significantly more in Montgomery based on the numbers that I'm seeing, even though they don't pinpoint it quite as much when you're looking at statistics. They don't really do that county by county or city by city as much as I would like. But if you're looking at the seven-day averages overall for the state, Five people a day is by no means something that is unsustainable. It's not even the highest rates of hospitalization we've had since this thing started. So we're by no means in uncharted waters or in any danger of exhausting our resources. And if you look at the 14-day average, it's even less. The 14-day average over the past two weeks has been 29 new hospitalizations for the virus this, this past two weeks. And the two weeks prior to that, 
it was only 27. It's an increase of two. Two more people on average over the, past, over the course of two weeks. This two weeks and then the two weeks prior to that. I mean, that's just statistically almost nothing. And so, again, I, the fact that it's on a rise, something that we need to acknowledge, something that we need to be aware of, Definitely keep your eye on it because, you know, it could go up higher than that. But if we continue with the current level that we're doing right now, it doesn't pose any threat whatsoever to our hospital system in the state of Alabama. We are in no danger as of right now. You know, I don't want people pulling this out three or four years from now and saying, ah, see, Caleb was wrong. Well, no, I'm, I'm talking about for the immediate future, for the foreseeable future, there is no reason to believe that our hospitals statewide are going to suffer some kind of severe shortage to where people aren't going to be getting care that they need. That's simply not something that the statistics do point to. So let's go ahead and look at deaths in the state of Alabama. So these are the COVID-19 deaths, and of course these are new deaths per day. You'll see that compared to where we were earlier in the month even, Deaths are significantly down, and we're experiencing that, and, and you can look at the, uh, they're, they're up a little bit, but we didn't even crack 10 today. We actually stayed below 10. We had nine deaths today in the state of Alabama. Now, this one is really interesting, because the seven-day average of the previous week is 8.7. The week before that is 8. So, it is an increase. It's an increase of 0.7, but that's not even a whole new death a day. And if you're looking at it overall, since the shutdown officially ended, the opposite is actually taking place. So a better way to, to indicate that is let's look at the 14-day averages, because this week, worse week for deaths than last week by 0.7 people per day. It's very, very small. Of course, any death is significant. Losing any life to for any reason, regardless of what it was, whether it was a heart attack, whether it was suicide, that, of course, is tragic and impactful. But I'm saying statistically looking at it, the idea that ending the shutdowns or whatever caused mass COVID-19 deaths, I'm sorry, the stats just aren't, er aren't there for that. It's such a small percentage, you, you're not even getting one extra person dying per day over the past two weeks. And remember that the shutdown really ended about three weeks ago. So you couldn't chalk this up to the, uh, you really couldn't chalk this up to the deaths being a result of the shutdown. And if you look at the 14-day average, because again, that's a better indication of where we have been since the shutdown started, since it was about three weeks ago that everything started opening up, the 14-day average for the previous 14 days, 8.4%. The previous 14-day average, which would have included some time in that week that would have had when the shutdown was still technically going on, when technically you couldn't dine in at a restaurant and technically you couldn't go to the beaches and all of that other stuff, 14.6. That means that since we have reopened, since that has taken place, the death toll has actually decreased from COVID-19 by almost half. I mean, that's a 6.2 less deaths per day. 
And so the most important statistic, the loss of life, because of course, it's horrible that somebody has to go through COVID-19. I have friends that have. I have one friend in particular that it was particularly rough on her. She couldn't taste or, or smell anything for several days. And uh, she was really worried. Of course, there was an anxiety aspect of it because her parents were vulnerable. She has older parents and she was worried about that. And it was something that, you know, it was it was a butt kicker. She was even featured in AL.com. She was one of the people that got it very early on. Uh it was something that really was an inconvenience for her, but she survived. And even though I would really rather people just not get the virus and not get sick, as long as we have people getting the virus, getting sick, but not dying, that's actually a good thing because that means that those people now have antibodies and we get one step closer to herd immunity. So while I don't want that to happen, I'd hate for anybody to have to actually go through that. Just looking at it, at the 10,000 feet view, that actually is something that is better for us. Of course, it's best for them to get the virus, create the antibodies, and be completely asymptomatic. That would be the best case scenario. That's not going to happen to everybody as we understand. But the Alabama deaths per 100,000, we do a little state-by-state -state comparison here. The Alabama deaths per 100,000 right now are 12. So out of 100,000 people in Alabama, 12 of them wind up dying from coronavirus. That puts us at 25th in the nation. We are right there in the middle. I mean, literally right there. We're, we're literally middle of the pack. But anyway, so we're 25th in the nation with only 12 people dying per 100,000. And to put that into perspective of how we're doing, that is 62% lower than the national average, which is 31. So the national average of people dying because of this virus, 31, us 12 out of 100,000. 62% less than the national average. And let's look at our neighbors to our immediate borders. So north, south, east, and west, we're doing uh, better than Mississippi and Georgia. They both have higher death rates, higher deaths per capita than the state of Alabama. Florida and Tennessee, lower death rates. So again, we're right in the middle of the pack on that one as well. When you're looking at our bordering states, we're doing better than two of them and worse than two of them. But the differences are fairly negligible. Because if you're looking at the overall statistics from Mississippi and Georgia, Mississippi is doing a little worse than Georgia, and we're behind them by two or three places. I think there was, if I'm not mistaken, we're in 25th place and Georgia's in like 20th something, 19th, 20th. And then you're looking at Florida and Tennessee. Florida is basically neck and neck with us. I think theirs was ours is 12 and theirs was 12 as well. So uh, statistically, you know, they're doing a little bit better than us, but not by much. It's, it's by less than one in a, a million. That's how to state that. That's how to look at the uh, statistics there. Tennessee's doing exceptionally well. I don't know what the heck Tennessee is doing that's allowing that to happen, but Whatever it is, Tennessee, I guess maybe it's because they have a very robust health. I don't know. Maybe it's because they have a robust healthcare system there and it just works better. I'm really not sure. But Tennessee has one of the lowest rates in the nation. So that's where we stand right now. We're, we're right at the middle of the pack, both comparison to the entire country and also in comparison specifically to the states right around us. But hospitalization rates, if you're looking at the 14-day and 7-day averages, 
Hospitalization rates have remained largely the same since all of this started, which is surprising. Like I said, they've gone up a little bit in the past week, but not even one that would amount to an extra person per day. And since the shutdowns ended, our death rates have almost been cut in half. So the idea that the shutdowns were some kind of massive, deadly thing that was going to cause all, I mean, just mass chaos, and basically there was going to be nothing left. Now, of course, this was our neighbors, uh, Georgia, not us, but I remember, what was it, the Atlantic? I want to say it was the Atlantic that put out a headline, and I, I hate to attribute this to the Atlantic if it wasn't them, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain it was them, they put out the headline when Georgia announced that it was going to open up when Brian Kemp, and he was one of the very first governors to do so, even despite the fact that President Trump criticized him for doing so. They, the way that they characterized it is Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. That was their headline. And yet Georgia's got roughly the same numbers as us. We're doing actually a little bit better than Georgia. And yet the national media is trying to characterize it as though all the states that once they've opened up and, and once the shutdowns have, have ended and there have been people in Alabama's own media trying to make this case as well, that it was going to cause mass death and destruction. Well, our deaths are down, our hospitalization rate's roughly the same. So I, I really don't see the problem here. That's where we stand as of right now. And the national media has been especially targeted on Alabama the past few days, CNN in particular, was one of the ones trying to peddle this. And CNN has basically become the Karen of the media. Now, I know that MSNBC and the other mainstream media outlets do this too, but the reason that CNN really grinds my gears is, unlike MSNBC, they still pretend to be some kind of objective news organization. MSNBC, at least, has basically admitted that, yeah, we're on the left and we don't care. NBC has... I mean, sorry, CNN has, even though they are News Radio 1440's news partners, I'm just so aghast at the fact that here recently, especially, CNN has become the Karen of Alabama, trying to shame us into wearing masks or calling us out and saying that what we're doing is dangerous. If you've seen the video of all the Karens shouting out that woman in the grocery store on Staten Island and telling uh, my favorite one was the guy that actually pulled his mask down to yell at the woman for not wearing a mask. Uh, but anyway, that's what CNN has become for the state of Alabama. And they did a lengthy segment on Anderson Cooper's show the other night to try to highlight how dangerous Alabama is when it comes to this stuff, because the policies that have been put in place, I guess, just don't jive with what CNN believes is the correct policy, the correct response. And they've tried to say they've tried to bring up, well, Alabama's cases are going up. Yeah, they are going up. I just talked about that in the last segment when we did our update. But you know, it's not going up deaths from the coronavirus in Alabama. You know, it's not going up at least to a statistical, statistically significant amount hospitalizations in the state of Alabama. So as much as I hate that the cases are going up and wish that they weren't, why would we torpedo our economy when, since we've opened it up a little bit more, we haven't even seen an increase in deaths or hospitalizations? That just doesn't make any sense. But CNN, of course, doesn't add that nuance. They just say, oh, cases are going up. And look, there's packed beaches here in Alabama. Everything's going to be death and destruction and the sky is falling. This is CNN doing this routine. Uh, the other night. 
Across the street, the beach is jammed. Groups are supposed to be six feet away from each other. Police work to enforce that. The groups are also ordered to only consist of people who live in the same household. There is no active effort to enforce that. When it comes to coronavirus, medical experts will tell you they're very concerned about the immediate future here in Alabama. On this beach, though, your eyes and ears will tell you something much different. So you can see from that where this is going. CNN showing pictures of uh, masses and hordes of people all crowded up and uh, clustered together there on the beach and saying, oh, look at these people in Alabama. My gosh, clutching their pearls. They're not social distancing. Ah! That's the routine CNN is doing. And I love, I love the, the, the CNN reporter uh, there, Gary Tushman. I think that's how you say his name. Gary Tushman. They're wearing a mask on the beach where it's sunny. I mean, he's outside. There's no reason to be wearing a mask. Uh, these people on the beach not wearing a mask and, and seeing and making a big deal about nobody wearing a mask out there on the beach. It's literally the safest place you could be out there in direct sun, uh, sunlight, strong wind blowing. Uh, I mean, you couldn't possibly be safer. You're way safer out there than you are cooped up inside. It's just a fact. When we're looking at, at how fast the sunlight destroys this virus, another thing that, could help understand exactly how ridiculous it is to believe that these people are endangering themselves and others by being out there like this. China right now is trying to do contract tracing, and I get it. I know China's information can't always be relied upon, but I can't really come up with a reason why they would lie on this specifically. They've lied on a lot of things before and have had a very specific, very clear motive for doing so because they didn't want to make themselves look bad. I don't really understand why they would lie about this. Maybe they have. Take it with a grain of salt because it is coming from the Communist Republic of China. I know that's a contradiction in words. I did that in intentionally. Uh... Their report that they've done on contact tracing, they have done over 300 different cases trying to figure out where each person in Wuhan and in other places in China got this virus to try to figure out more accurately how it spreads and why it spreads and that kind of thing. They've looked at over 300 cases. Do you know how many of them they believe got the virus while outside? One. So far, based on all of the information that they've gathered, and they've traced it down to where was the most likely place that each person that they've looked at, and again, over 300 cases, they think there's one that contracted the virus outside. That's it. This thing simply does not spread, as far as we know, outside. Or if it does, it has to be extreme extenuating circumstances. We've done studies and, you know, we haven't done it to the degree that China has yet because we got it a little bit later, but we're trying to do similar studies here in America. And so far, there has yet to be a known case in the United States, anywhere, where somebody got it outside in direct sunlight. Now, maybe, maybe if it's cold and maybe drizzling or sleeting or, or really overcast and there's barely any sunlight out there, this happens on like a, I don't know, a chilly night or something like that. Okay, maybe. You're probably at much larger risk for contracting the virus in those circumstances, but it's a sunny beach. 
the odds of these people contracting it from doing something like that is practically non-existent. And I love the line that CNN tries to wiggle in there. It's like, well, the rules say that only people that are supposed to be gathered together are ones that are living in the same house. So far as we know, there's been no such, uh, no, no attempt to enforce that. How are you going to enforce that? Seriously, put yourself, because this is the enforcement side of the law. Put yourself into the mind of a security guard or a police officer that is working the beach that day. Is he supposed to walk up to literally every single group and say, okay, do y'all live together? You, you all live in the same house, right? They would have to do that to every single one. And by the way, since we don't have papers or documents or something on your driver's license that has a comprehensive list of everybody that you live with, they could just lie. Even if the police officers did do something stupid like that and trying to go out and enforce the rule of trying to make sure the only people gathered together are people that live in the same house, even if you tried to do that, all they would have to say is, yeah, we live together. What are you going to tell them that they don't live together? I mean, it's just absurd, the reporting here from CNN. But even ignoring all of that, even ignoring everything that I just told you, even ignoring how ridiculous that is and how they're clearly trying to steer a narrative in a particular direction, at least all of that you could dismiss as CNN just being ignorant or not doing their due diligence or not understanding how the virus works which you would think since they've talked about it basically 24 hours a day on CNN since this whole thing started, and I get it, I've, I've covered it quite a bit myself, you would think that they would understand that this thing doesn't spread in sunlight. Even if you ignore all of that, it's still pretty hard to forgive them for the fact that CNN is straight up lying to your face. And as proof of this, watch this next clip is everything, but according to city officials in both Gulf Shores and Orange Beach, the reality of social distancing can be seen in these aerial photos taken this Memorial Day weekend. Now, that video, that video is from NBC15, a local NBC affiliate out of Mobile. But apparently, little bitty local news channel did... I don't know, 10 seconds worth of research and completely debunked CNN. Literally all it took is a, and I don't know if they took the video from one of their drones or one of their helicopters or they had somebody else do it, but literally all they would have had to do is send a drone up to get an aerial shot and CNN can't be bothered to do that. I mean, you saw those beaches. People were social distancing. They were keeping apart from one another. Those beaches weren't nearly filled to capacity, but when you're, it's a, it's an optical illusion. When you are looking at it from an angle like that, when you're looking at it at, at eye level or below, it makes the beach look way more crowded than it actually is. This is a camera trick that Hollywood has been using for years. CNN is literally using tactics that Hollywood has been using to try to make rooms look bigger than they actually are. Boy Meets World, one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. They actually make a joke about this, break the fourth wall a little bit, and make a joke about it inside that TV series. There's one where they go to the set, which, I mean, it's the set that they've been using this entire time, but they go to the set of their own classroom that they use in the show, 
And the whole thing is they're breaking the fourth wall. They're in the 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 set of a imaginary show that's taking place basically in an alternate reality of the show that is going on there. And they go inside their classroom is like, there's only nine deaths in this classroom. Are we really supposed to believe that there's only nine students? And I'm like, yeah, but with camera angles, we can make it look like it's a lot more. This is a trick that Hollywood uses to trick its viewers into thinking there are more people than there really are. And CNN, a news company, just did exactly the same thing. It would be one thing if they just didn't say anything about it and just gave you that impression based on the the person walking around or showing. But no, they specifically show shots, low angle of people, and it looks like there's a whole bunch of them together and say, well, there's really no social distancing going on there. But if you look at the aerial shots, oh, there absolutely was. CNN is lying to your face. They know that these people are standing apart. They know that because they have reporters walking around and seeing that people are distancing themselves. And to give you some frame of reference on of all of this, this is a picture, I couldn't find one of Orange Beach. But I found one of Perdido Beach, which is like 15 miles from the beach that you just saw. And so it's same area, same culture, everything. Uh, this is a picture back in April of 2019 of that beach. That's an aerial shot, and then you can you remember the aerial shot that we just showed a second ago of what the beaches looked like. Now, that's a crowded beach, and that's what Orange Beach would have looked like if nobody was social distancing. Now, frankly, like I said, I don't think that even doing that would necessarily be dangerous considering what we now know about the virus and how it spreads. But CNN is just straight up lying to you, trying to make you think that these beaches were way more crowded than they actually were. Especially for a big weekend like Memorial Day weekend. The aerial shots that you just saw from that local NBC affiliate, that's nothing. That's nowhere close to the way that it normally is. And so people absolutely were social distancing, despite what CNN says when they lie to you. So let's go ahead and look at another clip from the same report from CNN. You can see here they're, they're complaining about masks not being worn on the beach, which is hilarious on a number of levels. And then there is the issue of masks. We saw a grand total of zero being worn on the beach. Do you ever wear a mask? No. My wife and kids do. I don't. How come you don't? I just feel comfortable that I'm going to be okay. But the mask isn't to keep you okay, it's to keep your wife and kids okay. To protect them. I get it. I get it. Uh, the survival rate is so high, I think... You're not worried about them getting sick because I they're going to live. I, I, we're all going to get sick for something eventually. President not Trump really. is part of this conversation. I mean, if he's not wearing a mask, I'm not going to wear a mask. If he's not worried, I'm not worried. The president? Yes, sir. Speaking of masks, Alabama has mandated them for restaurant and bar workers. Some restaurants have them. But at others, where we arrived unannounced and shot cell phone video, employees were not wearing masks. The manager here telling us after our visit, he has now given masks to his employees with instructions to wear them. At this other restaurant bar, where we also saw no employees wearing masks, the manager told us they will continue not wearing them because she wants it that way, despite it violating the state order. 
First of all, you got to love CNN's diligence. We Let's go find our anti-Trump ammo. So let's go out and ask a kid. And by the way, you notice how they don't show the question that led up to that. I'd be really fascinated to see the unedited clip of, of why the guy was talking about President Trump. I don't know this for sure. I would guess that what happened there is that the reporter there asked, hey, uh, does the president have any influence over whether or not you choose to wear a mask or not? I would guess that's, that's how that conversation started. Granted, I don't know. Maybe he just volunteered that, but it seems odd to me that the reporter just automatically knew who he was talking about when he said, well, if he's not going to wear a mask, I'm not going to wear a mask. It seems really odd that that would be, uh, the way that that happened. So, and then they showed the guys with the boat with the big Trump sticker. It's like, okay, we got to figure out a way to pin this on Trump. We got to make sure that people know that President Trump not wearing a mask is the reason these guys aren't wearing a mask. It's just ridiculous. Which, I mean, the president's not wearing a mask and uh, he's worn it in some circumstances. He had to wear it, you know, with Detroit. He wore it, he said, to the stage and from the stage. So the only part that he wasn't wearing a mask for was when he was actually on the stage. But if there was anybody that didn't need to wear the mask, it was Trump, because I'm sure that guy is tested, if not once a day, multiple times a day. But regardless, that's where it goes in. And I love how the CNN reporter, this guy, Gary uh, Turchman, I believe is the way to say it. That guy's the perfect example of scientism versus actual science. Because the whole thing is, let let me put on my mask and virtue signal that I am a, a fan of science. But then he doesn't understand how the mask actually works. Because when he's questioning that guy there on the beach, he says, why don't you wear a mask? And he says, well, I'm not worried. He's like, well, it's not about you. It's about keeping your wife and your your kids safe. And no, that's not that either. If you live in the house with people, which again is something that CNN was just harping on 10 seconds before. If you live in the same house with people, the mask isn't going to help them. You're, you're not using the mask to protect people within your own home. What the mask is supposed to do is to protect other people out in public that don't have regular contact with you from getting it. And there's questions as to how effective that is, too. You know, I, I tend to think that they help at least some. I mean, if, you, if a person sneezes, it'd be a lot better for them to have a mask on than not have a mask on if they happen to have the virus. But within the house... Does this guy really think that the guy just should be wearing a mask 24 hours a day to protect his wife and his kids while he's in the home with them? It's just stupid. This guy, he doesn't understand that the virus doesn't spread in sunlight. He doesn't understand that the mask is to protect other people you come in contact with in public, not people in your own home. And he's wearing a mask himself on a bright sunny day out in the beach where it's not doing anybody, including himself, any good. It's just so absolutely ridiculous. And I love how also how he's talking about how bad it is that the restaurants have people walking around that, that don't have masks, and there are even some employees that aren't wearing masks. Those restaurants are outside! I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record here, but they're just completely ignoring everything that science has told us within the past month about this virus and how it spreads. So they're either completely ignorant of it, which I guess granted is possible, it's CNN, or, and this is the more likely rationale behind it in my opinion, 
They saw a narrative that they wanted to pursue, and so they used everything hoping that an uninformed viewer, which would probably be the majority of CNN's audience, all three of them, uh, that an uninformed viewer would see that and not know the difference. And so it would continue to further a narrative that they know isn't true. But that's how CNN conducts business, apparently. And in case you don't believe that this whole thing is theater, that this is CNN basically making themselves into a production company for a reality show as opposed to an actual news report that's supposed to inform people, go ahead and take a look at this. This is that same reporter on the beach there in Alabama when he was doing this report, Gary Tershman. You can see him here. So there he is on the right, not wearing a mask. He had the mask on for the cameras, but the second the cameras stopped rolling, oh, it's not dangerous out here. Let's go ahead and take the mask off. This whole thing is theater. It's all made for the cameras. He's just like an actor putting on an act to report a pretend news story to scare people. That's what's going on here. And the fact that he doesn't feel that it's dangerous, he feels that he's fine walking around without a mask and his cameraman doing the same. We've seen this over and over again. There was the video of the White House press conference that the cameras kept rolling even though the reporters thought that they weren't. They all immediately stood up, took all their mask off. And that was, I mean, at least that was inside where the mask might conceivably make a difference. Out, outside where we are here, they don't even make a difference. We saw the same thing with uh, that video that came out, I think this past week, where the reporter is doing a report there in Michigan about all these people walking around not wearing masks. And then he's there wearing his mask doing his report. And some guy walks by and he's like, and this guy isn't wearing a mask. He's like, yeah, neither is your cameraman and crew. <laughs> and the, the reporter had to admit, well, yeah. And then just didn't have a comeback. They know it's not real. That's what hacks me off about this. You're supposed to be a news organization, but you're operating more like a reality TV show. It's more interested in telling a story you made up than you are actually reporting the facts. You don't even believe the very things that you're teaching. For further proof of this, this is a clip in that same segment with that same reporter from CNN talking about the restaurants here in Alabama. At this time, it's not the most pleasant thing to make these kind of arrests, but you don't have to be a sleuth to find these restaurants around here with waiters and bartenders with no masks. They're all over the place. As a matter of fact, I got my lunch at a place just like that earlier today. <laughs> Do you get the? It's so horrible that all of these bars and restaurants don't have masks and they're just, just walking around all willy-nilly without wearing masks. It's so dangerous and even suggesting the police need to start enforcing that. And he's saying, in fact, that's exactly how it was at the restaurant I ate lunch at. Wait, 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 wait a second. You think it's so dangerous and so unhealthy yet you are willing to consume, put into your body food that was prepared at this place. The guy doesn't even believe what he's preaching. He doesn't. Because if he did, he would never eat that. If he did, he would never consume food that was prepared 
at a place where that wasn't happening. I mean, if you saw a place that there was something that you believed was blatantly unhealthy, like, uh, you know, cockroaches, you see a cockroach scurry across a table in a restaurant, I'm getting the heck out of there. And so this guy apparently keeps saying, well, well, this isn't healthy and it's so wrong that these uh, restaurant employees and bartenders aren't wearing these masks and even suggesting the police should get involved. He's like, yeah, but I'm going to eat there. I don't even know how to respond to that. This is like, it's the same thing as what Al Gore does. Al Gore constantly preaching to us about how our lifestyles are going to doom the planet and everything's going to end in 12 years. But then he has a heated pool at his house that could power a city. Just his swimming pool takes up more power than the average house in Tennessee. And yet he's going to preach to us about how our lifestyles are killing the planet. And we need to be, we need to conserve our energy more. This is exactly the same thing. You know, the thing is, I actually get tired of people in the media, right and left, referring to things as hypocrisy, because hypocrisy is very specific. In fact, hypocrisy is an old theater term. What it means is, it, it comes from the Greek, it is when a person puts on a mask, a theatrical mask, and pretends to be a thing that they are not. People can be inconsistent without being hypocritical. Because some people, even though their ideas may not be consistent, they're not pretending to be the thing that they aren't. This is about as clear-cut an example of the original meaning of the word hypocrisy as I've ever seen, right down to the mask. He's literally putting something on, putting on a face in front of the camera for you to observe that is not him and doesn't reflect his actual beliefs. He's pretending to be a thing that he is not. And CNN is doing the same thing by masquerading as a news organization, specifically doing things that are contrary to the narrative, the storyline that they are feeding to the public. It's just absolutely insane. I'm also really hesitant to call things fake news because it carries a negative connotation. And usually people, what fake news has become is just a catch-all term for anything that I disagree with or anything that doesn't show full context. I've always said that fake news is very specific. Fake news is when they particularly manufacture things out of whole cloth and try to make it into a news story, not just leaving out context or giving a misleading headline. Those things are definitely bad, but not technically fake news. This is fake news because they literally made a story up out of nothing. The social distancing thing, not an issue. The mask thing, not an issue. And they don't even believe the narrative that they're spinning. If they believed it was so unhealthy that it was so horrible that everybody that was going to eat at one of these restaurants that they were putting the public health in danger, why the heck would they eat there? It doesn't make any sense. Why did they do this? Why did CNN decide to make Alabama the target? Well, there, there's two main reasons here, and I've actually already touched on one of them. One is they love the narrative. They love the narrative because of where we are. All these idiot, backward, country-fried rubes down in Alabama who can't they don't like science and they, they think that global warming is voodoo and we just made it all up. Those bunch of anti-science hicks that cling to their God and their guns, they're out there just 
living it up on the Gulf, not wearing masks, not social distancing, basically thinking, and in their mind, this is how it works, even though people in Alabama don't believe this, that the virus is a hoax and it shouldn't be taken seriously. It fit really nicely into that narrative, and it's especially true for the second point, which is Alabama's Trump country. CNN has a seething disdain for anybody that even thinks about supporting Trump. And people in the heartland, the middle of America, anybody that's not one of the elitist on the coast. And this narrative fits squarely into both of them. And basically, the, the implication of their story, what the message they're trying to throw out there is these people are idiots and they're all going to wind up doing things that are irresponsible and it's going to wind up killing a lot of people and getting a lot of people sick. And the second half of that is, and they did it because they're Trump people. I mean, Alabama is the reddest state in the country. It's, it's where Trump enjoys his highest approval rating of any state in the nation. And so this just so nicely fit into their little narrative. And that's why they ran with a story like this. So there we are. CNN is specifically trying to whip you up into a false panic that they don't even believe in. And it shows in their actions. By the way, I would love to sit here and tell you that uh, this was the only case of them doing that. But it's not even just CNN. Because our own mayor, the esteemed Stephen Reed, went on CNN to basically assist them in this propaganda mission. So Mayor Stephen Reed of, Al of, of Montgomery, Alabama, goes on and talks to CNN's Anderson Cooper, actually in the same segment. This happened just minutes after the report that you just saw. So this is Mayor Reed on CNN. Absolutely. Uh, it gives me uh, pause to think about what we may see uh, the next week or two when people get back to their communities uh, from vacationing down the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's problematic that people believe this pandemic is uh, over. It's problematic for me that people are cavalier about uh, their behavior. Uh, and it's problematic to me that we have not done a better job at the state and national level of explaining the seriousness of this uh, virus to not only the people directly, but also to their friends, their family, and certainly our first responders and medical personnel who are also participating in this. Now, does anybody believe that we just haven't taken this thing seriously enough? Does anybody believe, as Mayor Reed just suggested, that people have been way too cavalier? If anything, what we know now about the virus shows that we were actually way too cautious. Now, I don't think that we should be cavalier. I mean, I don't think that we should, uh, you know, just have kissing booths out in public at this point. Probably a bad idea right now. Not, not a behavior that I would endorse. And I, I think that it's probably a good thing that a lot of the things that we did emphasize things like washing your hands, wearing masks when you're in close contact with people. Those were all positive things. And I understand in ignorance, not knowing what we know about it now, that we took probably some measures that were a little bit overly zealous and, and probably that we didn't need to. You know, I, I can give a lot of grace to that because we didn't know a lot of these things at the time. But Mayor Reed saying, well, I just wish that our, our state and, and national government had been emphasizing this more. What are you talking? We've been talking about this for two freaking months. It's been the only news story with a handful of rare exceptions for two months now. I feel like, if anything, we're way overly saturated 
with how serious this thing is. Part of the reason I started the Geek End, which is, you know, just the entertainment segment of my show, where we don't really talk about real news, was because of how overly saturated everything was with coronavirus. So I don't get that either. And another thing, too, that I, I take issue with, with Stephen Reed's comments, it just reeks of elitism. Basically, look, we know what's best for you. We know what's best for you. We know what's best for your family. I, it really bothers me that people are going out there and making their own decisions on this. And, and really, we need to start stamping that down. We need to do so. People are being way too cavalier about it. We just need to come in and, and they're not taking it seriously and they don't understand. So we need to come in and, and fix that. Look, the whole idea behind the foundation of this country is people get to make their own decisions. Sometimes those decisions are bad. Sometimes those decisions even endanger themselves. But ultimately, they're their decisions to make. And that's one thing that just drives me up a wall about Mayor Reed with this and, and the whole curfew thing. And we, we already fought about that. I'm not going to rehash that right here and now. But basically, he believes that the average person is an idiot and needs to be coddled like a little child. No, people are going to make mistakes. They're going to make decisions you don't agree with. But that's what freedom looks like. You can't stop people from making dumb decisions. As long as they don't hurt other people in the process, then they should be allowed to make those decisions. And if people are willing to, to go out on a beach, which again is one of the safest places on earth to go in the middle of this thing, if they want to go out on a beach and risk it, that's up to them. I don't understand why Mayor Reed feels like he, from his ivory tower, needs to intervene and save us from ourselves. We're adults. And I think that that goes back to a larger point that I'm going to make here. That a lot of people, not just through the coronavirus pandemic, but overall, they make the mistake of assuming that anybody whose conclusion is different than theirs, that the person must be uninformed. I've got a lot of friends. On the political right, on the political left, I have some friends that are moderates. And I don't, I, I, I try my absolute dead level best to make sure that whenever we disagree on an issue, whether it be a political issue, whether it be a, a biblical or spiritual issue, whatever it is, I try really hard not to make the assumption that if they see it differently than, than I do, it's because they're misinformed or because they are uninformed, they're ignorant. I try really hard not to do that. Now, sometimes after a little digging, I find that actually is the problem. But Mayor Reed is basically assuming that the only reason, according to what he just said, the only reason that people are making these decisions is because they haven't been adequately informed by the state or by the federal government that they've been given a false sense of security. Well, no, it's possible that they saw exactly the same information as you did, and they decided, eh, I'll be a little bit more bold than Mayor Reed would like me to do. Maybe Mayor Reed's just a little bit more timid. And that's not necessarily a bad thing per se, as long as it doesn't interfere with other people's decisions. You shouldn't assume just because somebody's reaction to something is different than yours that it's because they're misinformed or they're, they're idiots. That's not the way to a healthy society, nor one where you'll be able to express your own beliefs in a, in a way that might convince other people. And that's one of the big problems that I have with this. I mean, it kind of makes sense. One of the most authoritarian people in politics is Mayor Bloomberg, and that's the person who Stephen Reed wanted to hold up as his candidate for president. So, yeah, I, 
kind of makes sense now based on this. Let's go ahead and look at this next clip, Mayor Reed. Not talking about the, the beach thing on Memorial Day, they move on to the ICU beds, and this is something that he's been harping on in local media for a while now. Let's go ahead and take a look. Yeah, I know you've been very vocal about the lack of ICU beds, uh, you know, intensive care unit beds in, in Montgomery. I know at one point you were down to one ICU bed left. Where, where do you stand with that now? How are your hospitals? We, we've seen marginal improvement. We have probably 7% of, of ICU beds. Uh, the hospitals believe that this is manageable, but it's not sustainable. And that's what they're sharing with me is that they are concerned about PPEs. They are concerned about uh, their beds. They are concerned about ICUs and as well as just the overall resources uh, that are dwindling. So we aren't at the cliff yet, but we can see it. And so we're just trying to make sure people understand uh, we want to slow things down before we get too close. Okay, so a couple of things there. First of all, I'm glad that they're concerned about that, but concerned and imminent danger are not the same thing. I'm concerned about a lot of things that I don't think are going to be a full system meltdown anytime soon, but that's the the way that this goes. Is he's And he's actually pretty good at, at parsing himself and hedging his language there. Mayor Reed is basically trying to make it sound as scary as humanly possible without actually giving the facts, because that would, of course, indicate that it's really not nearly as scary as he's trying to make it sound like it actually is. This is Mayor Reed going on CNN, peddling the panic porn. I mean, I don't really have any other way to classify it. And the one fact that he does put in there sounds a lot scarier than it actually is. So you'll hear there, he said, well, we're actually back to having about 7% of our ICU beds available right now. So, okay, 7% beds left. Boy, that, that does sound super scary, doesn't it? Well, it does until you know that the average hospital in America operates at anywhere between 80 and 85% capacity for their ICU beds. So they've got, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% available at any given time. And so 7% would mean that for the average hospital, that there's definitely a higher level of capacity than normal, or sorry, a higher level of occupation of those ICU beds than normal, but not necessarily ridiculously high. Not something that looks like what we were promised where, you know, we're not Italy or Spain where there were people being treated literally in the parking lot in giant inflatable bouncy castles. We're nowhere near that. 7% really isn't anything to freak out about. And also when you add in the fact that Montgomery is not the average hospital because Montgomery is 40 minutes away, especially if you're in an ambulance, from a place like UAB and other hospitals there in Birmingham. Now, I've been living in the River Region my entire life. With the exception of my college years where I lived in Auburn, I have lived somewhere within 30 minutes of the capital city from the time I was about one year old up until the time I'm 30 and currently occupy the capital city right now. And I can't tell you the number of people and remember, I'm a preacher's kid, so we're really close to a lot of this stuff. That when people are in critical condition, where people have accidents or whatever, they say, oh, they're moving them to Birmingham. Happens all the time. And I'm guessing if you're listening from the capital city right now, you know that is the case. Pretty common thing. Montgomery, 
has a, a relationship with Birmingham that we basically use a lot of their hospital and their medical resources on a very regular basis. And so Montgomery Hospitals, I haven't been able to research this or independently verify it yet, but I imagine they probably operate at significantly less than 80 to 85% capacity, which is the average nationwide. Montgomery has a very different relationship with Birmingham than most cities because it's so close by and they have better resources than us. And because of that, we rely on them a lot more than the average city hospital would. And so that 7% is probably even less, you know, mortifying, even though it really wouldn't even be all that scary for a normal hospital to only have 7% left. Then Mayor Reed is trying to do it. And so robbing the 7% figure of all its context makes it sound like, boy, we're really almost out of ICU beds when really, eh, no, we're not, at least not in a way that would put anybody's life in danger. That's the main thing here. But the, uh, the, the thing that I would like to ask too, and this is something that I don't think anybody else has been asking, how many of those extra ICU beds in Montgomery have been occupied because of the shutdown? Because we know, and there have been nationwide reports of people not going in to get preventative treatment. We know that it was actually illegal in Alabama and many other states to have elective procedures, which would be things like mammograms, cancer screenings, that sort of thing. And, and remember, I'm somebody that's been through all of that. How many of those people are having to be given ICU care specifically because of things that were not caught, that were not handled back when the shutdown was taking place, back when everything was in full effect? Now, I'm not trying to make the case that we should, I'm not trying to make the case that this wasn't something that, that merited some concern. I still think that government-mandated shutdown should have never happened, but that's actually on a completely different rationale. That's just because I'm a libertarian. But looking at it from that side of it, how many of these things could have been prevented and we'd actually have more ICU beds available were it not for the shutdowns? How many of those people would be in better condition and not even need an ICU bed? Not only would they not, not be coming in all at once when the shutdown's over, but how many people wouldn't have even ever got to the point where they needed an ICU bed if it weren't for the shutdowns? That's a completely unknowable statistic. I realize I can never quantify that. We'll never be able to know that for sure. But it is an interesting thought in what Mayor Reed is talking about and being critical of the governor for opening up the state. It's something that needs to be considered that the very problem he's griping about may have actually been made worse by the policy that he's advocating for. But I think, unfortunately, what we have here is a case of Mayor Reed being a useful idiot in CNN's propaganda. I think that they, they saw somebody from Alabama that would come on and basically recite all of their talking points for them, and so CNN jumped at the opportunity to do it. You'll notice that they did not get to comment on the beaches being overcrowded, the mayor of Orange Beach or Gulf Shores or Mobile or any of those places, they went to the guy that they knew was going to pair at their talking points. And so both Mayor Reed and CNN are at fault for this one. We're going to go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. In 1775... The Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, 
Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today, I think, in a lot of ways, is very timely. I really didn't plan this. I didn't even know what the coronavirus was when I planned our little session on 1 Samuel. But it has been so timely, and I think it really does show how a story from years and years ago, I mean, we're talking before the time of Christ, roughly, you know, 3,000 years ago, is still prevalent today because human nature doesn't change and God doesn't change. And so all of these things still hold true to this very day. The, the way that we have had a lot of questions as a society here recently about the role of Christians and whether or not they are to obey governments and exactly what form that takes and what that looks like and where are the lines, where are the limits, where do you stop? This is going to be another case study really in that. And so let's go ahead and look at 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 15. And remember, this is where Samuel is basically, he's already anointed Saul as king. He's already started his sign off and he's basically giving some, some parting advice to Israel on how they should be. So here is Samuel speaking in 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 15, where he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him, and listen to his voice, and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. On its surface, this verse is just a warning given to Israel, which, I mean, it is. That's not an incorrect understanding of this passage. It's just a warning given to Israel coupled with a promise, which are pretty common in the Old Testament. We see all the time where God will say something to very similar effect, that if you listen to me, if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed. If you refuse to do so, you're going to face unforeseen consequences, sometimes in the form of direct punishment where I do something to you, sometimes just because you fall victim to the circumstances of your own choices, but regardless, you're going to see something really terrible happen. But adding the context and putting in exactly what this means and, and what he's talking about here really adds a, a lot of nuance to what that looks like. It, it fleshes the, the very simple, very common theme out a little bit more in application. So I want you to, to notice here that obeying God is something that you're commanded to do even over the king. Now, we don't have a king in America, so that's a little hard for us to relate to. And we haven't had a king for 240 years. But the thing that's important to really take away from that is that whether it's the king or the government that's been put there, because what do we learn in the New Testament from Paul? He says that they, they bear the sword basically as an instrument of God's will. That doesn't mean that he approves of everything that government does, but it means that if they have it, then God is going to use it to his advantage. And even with terrible, evil, wicked people that hate God and, and want to destroy him, he uses even them to do that. And so one of the things that he is pointing out here is that obedience to God is not contingent upon the king. Even though in this circumstance, Saul was literally God's anointed, 
It is a person who God himself, through a prophet, chose out of the masses of Israel and said, this is my guy. This is going to be your king. He is the person I have chosen to be the leader over my nation of Israel. Even that person, his words don't supersede mine. He doesn't get to talk for me. You obey me, you don't obey him. You obey him with the authority that I have imparted to him, but remember that that authority comes directly from me, and if he's saying one thing, I'm saying another, you go with me. You go with God. You don't listen to the king if he's telling you to do something that would be contrary to what I have told you to do. And so that's the first thing. When we're talking about government and God, if government's telling you to do one thing, God's telling you to do something else, you go with God, you don't listen to the government because his laws are higher than man's laws. That's something that's consistent through the Old and the New Testament. And it doesn't even just specifically go for kings. Even the apostles and the prophets told people, if I start saying something that is contrary to God's will, if you start looking through the scriptures like, wait a second, this, this doesn't comport at all. You listen to God, not me. Paul himself said that. And so here we are with Samuel issuing a very similar warning to the children of Israel. And what does that mean when we apply that? Well, for one, it means that really, even though the king has certain privileges, certain things that he could do that the children of Israel couldn't do from a governmental standpoint, even though his station was a little bit more prestigious on earth than it was for the average Israelite, they're all supposed to be obedient to God. The guy who is working farmland and is dirt poor and can barely afford to feed his own family out in, you know, uh, Rabosh Gilead or Bethlehem, that guy is just as accountable to God, just as required to be obedient to him as King Saul is. So, yeah, they, they may have very different stations in life. They ha may have wildly different incomes, wildly different lifestyles. Doesn't matter. They're human beings. They're all accountable to me. They all have to be obedient to me. Saul's authority is derived from, from me, has, has been derived from God's power to begin with, and so he's just as responsible to obey me and to do what I commanded him to do. That's what God's saying as anybody else. He's not privileged. He's not special. He just has a different task than you. And that's really something that we see in the church today, too, isn't it? It's not that deacons and elders and ministers, it's not that these people are superhuman or that they're above reproach or that they get to speak for God or any of those things. They have different roles, but God doesn't value one above the other. God doesn't say to this one that, that your service is less important because you don't have the prestigious office that I've imparted to someone that's an elder or a deacon or a minister. That, that's not how God's kingdom works, and that's not how the kingdom of Israel worked back then either. And another thing that I think is interesting here is that the way that it talks about it, it also implies, which is something that turns out to be true, that godly people are a blessing to the king, and that a godly king is a blessing to his people. Now, like this verse says, the best thing that you can do is to have both of them working together. So if, if the king follows you and, or sorry, the king follows God and the people are following God, well, well, that's the ideal. That's what we're all striving for. That's what we all should be working toward. But here is Samuel, God speaking to his people through Samuel. 
where he says, but if you are godly people, regardless of who your king is, you'll be a blessing to that person. If the king is godly, even if his people stray away, even if his people aren't doing what they should be, that good king is going to be a blessing to his people. That's what the New Testament tells us. Look, Christians should be the best workers, the best bosses, the best uh, government officials, the best service. I mean, if, if you have a Christian that's working in a restaurant like, like I have before, they should be the best of all of those things because they are the people that treat other people the way that they would want to be treated. They treat other people like they were serving Christ himself. That doesn't always happen in application, but as this verse implies, that's what we are trying to do. That a godly people is going to be a blessing to that nation, a blessing to other nations. A godly king is going to be a blessing to that people. But if you don't have one, that's not an excuse for you not being the other. In other words, if you have a king that's not godly, that's not an excuse for you people to not be godly. You're still going to be held accountable to that. But if you will be godly, even if you have a king that's not godly, you'll be a blessing to them. Who knows, you might even change him because of that. But the other side of that, the other side that I think is equally important is that rebellion equals punishment. It was the true then, it's true now. Rebellion equals punishment. You rebel against God, you rebel against His will, punishment is going to follow, whether it's God directly punishing you, or again, you just fall victim to the circumstances of your own choices. Either way, bad things are going to happen. And that was true even back then as it is true now, but obedience can take place regardless of the form of government. You notice how that particular commandment didn't change? Because there were judges, there was some government structure, it was very loose, but there was some government structure that existed before Israel had a king. Well, they were called to obedience then. And now that they have a king, they're also called to obedience. Living a godly lifestyle, living the way that God commanded them to do, that remains the same. And so you can be a godly person, whether you're living under a good government, a bad government, a monarchy, a dictatorship, regardless of what it is. No matter what form of government it takes, whether it's a Greek democracy, a Roman Senate, an American Republic, any of those things, then you still have the obligation to obey God, to listen to his word, to be godly, to be a good citizen. All of those things remain the same. Sure, the way that that plays out, the way that that looks might change a little bit based on the form of government or the kind of government or whether the people running that government are godly. Ultimately, you're still responsible to God first and foremost, and obedience is still called for. In other words, Israel having a bad king didn't let them off the hook. When they had a king that was ungodly, the fact that they were ungodly didn't mean that, oh, well, they're not responsible for it because now they've got a king. In the same way, they could not just be considered in God's good graces just because they had a good king. I mean, do you think that God looked over murders and liars and, and all of the other things that went on while David was king just because he was king? No, of course he didn't. And so the command of obedience is a personal one. Ultimately, just like it was back then, it, it's just as true now, God wanted a personal relationship with his people. He wanted his people to love him and obey him and to listen to his commandments. He wanted it then, he wants it now. And if we'll do that, then regardless of what form our government takes, no matter what 
political wind comes next and, and shifts our government, even if we wind up, God forbid this happens, but even if we wind up being taken over or America is no longer a free country, if we wind up a dictatorship or some kind of socialist experiment, whatever, ultimately our call to be obedient to God remains the same and it always will. Let's make sure we get that right and everything else even if it's less than ideal like Israel has here, it's all going to fall into place eventually. Because primarily our relationship with God is a personal one. One that can't be irreparably damaged by government or really anything else in this world. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.